begin tonight and open with a word of prayer. Uh, if you just came in, if you have your bulletin for your notes, and uh, you'll need that in just a few minutes. I would say make sure it has today's date on it, but by my fault it has last week's date on it. Um, but it should say uh, Esther 4 inside of it, <clears throat> and that'll be uh, the right mail. Make sure you have the right notes for this evening. Um, but let's open with a word of prayer tonight, and then we will sing a few songs this evening. I'm glad you braved the nasty weather to get here, and um, it's warm inside, and hopefully the Lord will speak to us this evening. Lord, we bless you for your goodness to us and your grace. Thank you that as we come before you, <clears throat> we can seek to please you because we can know you, and we don't have to guess what you may uh, desire from us. We don't have to just hope that we can please you enough, but that through Christ we come as your children, and we praise and rejoice in you for it. And we ask that you give us mercy tonight as we open your word, and that you give us understanding. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, Sunday evening we begin to... Amen. Thank you. Amen. Take your Bible tonight, if you would, and turn... To the book of Esther, chapter number four, Esther chapter four, and uh, as you're finding your place there, you can have out this evening's notes. I teased about having the wrong date and then opened the inside of mine just a moment ago to realize I actually did have the wrong set of notes. I had last week's notes, and so that wouldn't help us tonight, and so make sure you have this evening, should say Esther lesson four on the inside of it. And I apologize for that. It's been one of those couple days where you plan things and uh, those plans don't always happen. And so uh, kind of last minute wrapping up some things for this evening as the Lord will help us. And I just want to thank you for a moment as a church family for caring for one another and uh, checking on one another. I've heard a lot of uh, things in the background in the last few weeks of people uh, checking on one another. You know, we have a number of families that have lost loved ones, and I've, I've heard of people connecting uh, with each other that really had no um, deep relationship, no long-term relationship, but they're just part of our church. And so you check on them, you ask them to go out to eat or have them to your house at Christmas time, whatever it may have been, a number of different uh, folks that I know that that's been the case. And I just thank you for that and your, your kindness, your friendliness. We have a few families in the next few weeks that'll be uh, joining our church and each one of those three or four families have mentioned uh, in their time here just how kind and uh, open-hearted people have been toward them. So I just want to thank you for that and know that it's not uh, taken for granted and uh, I hope that you'll continue to do that in, in the days ahead as the Lord gives us the ability to help others. And so <clears throat> I just want to thank you for that. Esther chapter 4, if you would there, you see at the top, the title for tonight, Morning, Trusting, and Living by Faith. And yes, each of those in the same chapter and out of a response to a, a deep and dark moment in the life of God's people. Uh, we'll read Esther 4 in just a moment, but you remember where we left off last week in chapter 3? That the book has taken, <clears throat> when seemingly, it, if you had never heard the story of Esther, you would think, when you get to the end of chapter 2, it would be difficult for it to take a much darker turn than it has already. Uh, you have a young lady who is uh, orphaned at a young age. The Bible does not say uh, that she had any siblings, and so she is raised by her older cousin. Evidently, that is the closest re familial relationship that she has in her life, and so she's raised by an old cousin who deeply loves her considers her as his own, named Mordecai, and uh, we know that they're being raised far away from the largest groups of multiple of the same, of the people of God, the Jews, those that would have called themselves family to Mordecai and Esther, and so they're apart, strangers in a distant land under a foreign government and an evil ruler, a, a sadistic, prideful, womanizing man who was uh, just conceited by his own ego and filled with desire. And he responds, and in a, a moment of his flesh and in a moment when he just sort of off the top of his head makes a law that affects the lives of 
thousands of people spread throughout the known world at that time. Esther is taken from Mordecai, doesn't say necessarily by force, but by law is taken from Mordecai and that she lives. And Mordecai gives her instruction not to tell people of her own ethnicity, her family, who she is and where she is from. And she is taken from him and she is made the queen, but it is not this miraculous uh, orphan to princess queen story, but rather it's a pretty awful relationship. And we've talked about that and uh, kind of looked to scripture to see how their relationship, we're going to see a little bit of that even this evening. She was not in a good relationship as queen. She was simply part of a harem, if you would, the head of the harem of all the king's wives. And uh, so just a, a terrible story, a dark story, if you're looking at it just from the perspective of this one family, but also for God's people. And we said that, why are we studying the book of Esther? It's an ancient book. It's a very Jewish-focused book. But it also, it does not include the names of the name of God. It doesn't have great displays of uh, faith. It doesn't have supernatural miracles in the sense of a physical nature. You don't actually visually see a miracle happen within the book, though we know that God works in his sovereignty in the events of those men. And that is exactly what the book of Esther is trying to teach us. Where the book of Daniel, and we've compared it quite often as an opposite parallel, the book of Daniel has great displays of faith, great service to God, messages directly from God, a pronouncement that God is in control even in difficult moments. Young men who say, we will stand for God regardless of what happens to us. Dreams and visions and words directly from God about what he is going to do in the future and how his kingdom will reign and rule over all. In Esther, you have none of those things. And so why would God give us a book that does not mention him by name, that doesn't speak of great acts of faith in a, in a direct sense, that doesn't give miracles, it doesn't give us direct visions and messages from God, it doesn't give us doctrinal statements, it doesn't even give us prophecy about a coming Messiah. It is simply this time in the lives of the people of God where, we phrase it this way, where God seems absent. But what we have learned as we started to study the book of Esther, it is not that God is absent, but rather that he is invisibly present. And so where Daniel speaks to the big moments of life where God's working is obvious, Esther speaks to the moments of our lives that are quiet that are lonely, that where God seems to be inactive in a moment in our life, where he's not doing the great, mighty thing that we can visually see and place our finger on. But in those moments, God is just as sovereign. His providence is just as much in control. So we've been studying that the last few weeks, and we left off in chapter 3. You remember last week, it was really just a study of bitterness. That you have these two men who... By all accounts in Scripture, and we said it's another interesting thing. If, you, if you're just kind of coming in and watching or listening, or you, you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, and we, we've gotten into this study, and the book of Esther is interesting. It doesn't really tell us how we should feel about the people in it or their actions. It just very simply tells us what happened. It doesn't say about things that Esther does, and this was good, you should do this. It doesn't even say about the bad things that the king and that Haman did. It doesn't even really condemn them. It just gives them to us. Some of it's obvious to us, but the book is not stating that it is an example for us to follow and live by, but rather it is teaching us of God's control. So you have these two men last week that were introduced to, and we did a, a little family study that Haman came, it says he's an Agagite. He came from the king or the line of Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites, who had been at war and at odds bitterly with the people of Israel. Ever since they came out and into the wilderness, the Amalekites attacked God's people while they were led by Moses in the wilderness. And God says, they're going to be at war forever, for generation after generation, because of what they have done to my people. So then they get into the land of Canaan, and you have Saul, who is the son of Kish, who Mordecai descends from, and you have Haman, who is an Agagite, who was the king of the Amalekites at the time that Saul was king of Israel. So you have these two kings side by side, and we know that eventually Saul spares Agag, but then Agag is violently killed, and the Amalekites are driven out. And now you have these two men that are living life literally centuries later, removed from all of this. 
And there's a law put into place that says everybody has to bow to Haman or at least give him reverence because he's the second in the empire. And it says Mordecai could not and would not do this. And the Bible only gives us a little hint as to why. It says that he tells the men come and say, Mordecai, you have to pay reverence to Haman. And it says that Haman says, I can't do this. I won't do this. And all it says at the end is that Haman revealed or Mordecai revealed to them that he was a Jew. I cannot do that. They're embittered with each other. Haman finds out he declares judgment on Mordecai, but then he finds out who Mordecai is. And he finds out that Mordecai is a Jew. And it says when Haman finds out who Mordecai's people are, it was not enough to kill just Mordecai. He's going to use his power to annihilate, is what the law sort of speaks into, annihilate the Jewish people. And so with that, we lead into chapter 4. Notice if you would, verse number 1. <clears throat> when Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes, put on sackcloth in it with ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry. We respond differently today. All of us in our own personalities respond to grief and fear and anxiety and struggle differently. Uh, but in Mordecai's day, this was a very common way to express grief, even anger, sadness, and repentance. This was a very common way. In fact, it was a very uniform way for God's people all throughout the Old Testament. So in verse 2, and it and came even before the king's gate. Mordecai came to the king's gate, but he didn't go in where his position was. Why? It says, for none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews and fasting and weeping and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's maids and her chamberlains came and told it her. And then was the queen exceedingly grieved, and she sent raiment to, to clothe Mordecai and to take away his sackcloth from him. But he received it not. And then Esther, uh, then called Esther for Hatak, one of the king's chamberlains, whom he had appointed to attend upon her, and gave him a commandment to Mordecai, or commanded him to go to Mordecai, to know what it was and why it was. So Atak went forth to Mordecai into the street of the city, which was before the king's gate. And Mordecai told him of all that had happened unto him, and of the sum of the money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasuries for the Jews to destroy them. Also he gave him the copy of the writing of the decree that was given to Shushan to destroy them, to show it unto Esther, to declare it unto her, and to charge her that she should go into, in unto the king to make supplication unto him and to make request before him for her people. And Hatak came and, and told Esther <coughs> the words of Mordecai. Again, Esther spake unto Hatak and gave him commandments unto Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whosoever whether man or woman, shall come into the king, into the inner court, who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter, that he may live. But I have not been called to come in unto the king these thirty days. And they told to Mordecai Esther's words. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house, more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whither thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Then Esther bade them return Mordecai this answer. Go gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast ye for me. And neither eat or drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. And so Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. Lord, help us tonight as we open your word. We know that you have told us in Romans 15 that whatever was written before time, whatever was written was given for our learning and that you chose to give us this story, conspicuously um, without your name, without great evidence of faith, <coughs> and yet 
to be honest, often our lives fit the context of this story. That there are uh, moments of our lives that we feel that you are inactive, where we do not feel a vibrant presence of your spirit in our lives. There are moments in us that we question what is happening, what is going on, and there are moments where our faith is incomplete and where we doubt. And so we ask that you would teach us from this, your word, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> you see there in your notes that we mention at the top that in Esther 4, what happens is critical to everything else that is going to follow in the rest of the book. This sort of is the central core of the book of Esther, the story, the account that is given to us. Everything else in this account is going to flow out of Esther's decision. Uh, the author, and it's, it's okay to acknowledge this, I'll say the author, the human writer of the book of Esther um, is artistic in a way in which he lays out the, the, the account of Esther to us. Uh, it's, it's very artistic in a way. It's very contemplative. It, it is well thought through and it is consistent all throughout in what it presents to us. And it is through chapter 4 that everything else is going to come as we follow along. Chapter 4, you notice it says it's an interesting because... I don't know if you noticed as we were reading it. It's a very dramatic conversation. If you kind of Im imagine for a moment Mordecai and Esther going back and forth. Esther, haven't you not heard what's going to happen to your people? No, I haven't heard what's happening to your people. We're all going to die. You must go to the king. I can't go to the king. And here's why I can't go to the king. If I go to the king, I'll die. And Mordecai says, you're going to die anyway. You have to go to the king. God may use you to save us all. And Esther says, okay, yes, I'll I'll go to the king. We imagine this dramatic conversation, but I want you to notice it's a dramatic conversation in which the two people conversing never actually meet or see each other. They're just sending messages back and forth. It's like ancient text conversation, I guess you would say. They're maybe a, a little more diluted than that, but they're going back and forth between uh, Hatak, who this evidently is this trusted servant of Esther. And so it's going back and forth, it's dramatic, there's deeply connected people involved, but they have not really been able to see each other for probably in the ballpark of about four years at this point that Esther has been queen. She's raised by Mordecai's deep love and commitment. She is obedient to his instructions, she follows his advice. The last thing right before she goes in, Esther, don't tell people who you are. And so now you can imagine the conflict that's in Esther's heart as Mordecai, who four years later says, Esther, you must go tell everyone who you are on our behalf. And so you have this deep conversation going back and forth between people who deeply love each other but have been disconnected. We won't go all through the history of it tonight. We've alluded to it a little bit the last few weeks that the way that it would work for the king's wives and concubines and the harem, if you would, that he had of all of these young ladies that he had married, literally married them all throughout all of those years. But Esther was the queen. They all sort of lived in their own palace. And so jealous was the king and was often the case with those who reigned in that day, but particularly within the Persian Empire. They were kept away from everyone. Servant girls could go in and administer to them. Only men that could go in were eunuchs. No one could go in. No servants. No one had any part of them. They were looked at as the king's property, an ugly, nasty situation. And so Mordecai, it tells us back in chapter 2, I believe it's in verse 11, it tells us that Mordecai used to pace back and forth. He would walk in front of where they kept Esther and the rest of them, and that somehow he would listen and he would hear word, and maybe Esther would... It seems like this is a common occurrence. Because the ladies, if you notice in the beginning of chapter number 4, you notice it says that Mordecai sees all that's done... And then notice in verse number four, so Esther's maids and chamberlains came and told it her. Evidently, the people that were around Esther knew her relation to Mordecai. And when they see Mordecai, they realize something is wrong and they take it to Esther. So while they have not been around each other and their lives really tied together for quite some time, they have been communicating. They have been talking, it seems, throughout the years. And so chapter 3 leaves us with this great judgment. The king is sharing a drink with the bad man of the account and this new sweeping law that's going to annihilate the Jews. And so what happens? 
I don't want to blow over <coughs> these first few verses that really speak into the story, the responses, and I want us to note a few things as we walk through, and then we'll seek to apply some of it as we get toward the end. Notice if you would, number one, the deep grief of God's people. The general population is perplexed by the law that's made. Notice the end of chapter 3. Again, notice verse 15, the last phrase, the last couple phrases. So the law goes out from the palace in Susa, the city, or Shushan. The law goes out from Susa. They're celebrating, the king and the rulers, the bad men. They're celebrating. And yet the people in Susa, the city, the population itself, they don't understand it. Remember the, the middles is this fortified palace where all the governors and uh, the people that were uh, administrators under the king, they would come and go in and out. They would live kind of there. It was sectioned off from the rest of the city. They're celebrating, but the people, not just God's people, but all of them are so confused as to what in the world is happening. The, the command we said last week goes out, not that the army was going to come for the Jews, but the law was that the common people from India to the Mediterranean Sea, all the way from Greece down into Africa, that the citizens of the people of the Persian Empire, the regular common people on a set day, were to go out and murder any of their neighbors that were a part of this Jewish people. It's unlike anything that we had seen at this point in Scripture. And so this command goes out and the response is this grief. Mordecai responds in deep grief and <coughs> it does not tell us here that Mordecai prayed. And it does not tell us that Mordecai repented or did anything of the sort. However, Mordecai's response is very much in line with the whole rest of the Old Testament when God's people do this. It was a great sign of repentance and often tightly tied and associated with prayer. So we're not going to speak into the story that Mordecai did something that he didn't, but we can take from this that it does seem that that is his heart toward the situation. He has revealed to these men that he is a Jew, he is part of God's people, and now he's responding as one of God's people. And in a way, it's, this, it's invoking this desperation that's coming out in his heart and his mind. And we put a note there, it says it's not right assessment here to assume that God's people only mourned and did not pray. If you read some people that write on the book of Esther, there's several people that kind of attack the response. And they say, well, look how far away God's people are from him. Because when they hear they're going to die, they don't pray and they don't repent. They just mourn and act sad. That's a difficult assessment, in my opinion, to make because everywhere else in the Old Testament, just the act of it. And then we know it's, it's nothing that makes it repentant just by the actual act of it. However, it's always closely uh, tied to repentance and prayer when it comes from God's people. And I think that we have to remember that the writer very purposefully, conspicuously lets God remain unseen and unheard throughout the book. And so here it makes sense that he just speaks to their physical actions. But notice God's people respond the same way in verse 3. All the 127 provinces, the Jewish people all throughout as the law goes, they respond with fasting, weeping, and wailing. For the most part, it seems the majority of God's people respond with grief, except for someone who did not respond with grief. You can holler it out. Verse number four, second word. Esther. Esther did not respond with grief. Esther did not respond with sadness. I think that it is not because Esther did not care. I really don't think that that is the case. And I don't think it's because Esther looked at this and thought she was going to be fine without it, so who cares about the rest? I think Esther was so secluded I think she was so captivated and taken away from the normality of life and shows, in a way, how she was being treated. She's not being treated as a normal person. She's not even being treated as a normal citizen with rights and freedom and to know information. She's kept completely aside from all, even the king's laws, all of his provinces, and even his ruling and reigning. She is not influential in this. She's totally separated. She is looked at as an object by the king. Because she looks down at Mordecai and sees him mourning and has no idea why Mordecai is acting this way. And I want you to notice, I don't think that her response here is wrong or sinful. However, I think it speaks a little bit <coughs> to the empire, the, the physical kingdom of Persia. And 
how she was going to think that she was going to solve this issue. So Esther is disconnected. She doesn't realize what's happening. But notice her initial response in verse 4. So she was exceedingly grieved. Why? Because she saw that Mordecai was upset. She's not upset because of the law or the judgment that's coming. She is upset at Mordecai's despair. So how does she think she's going to solve Mordecai's problem? Notice in the middle of verse 4, she sends raiment to to clothe Mordecai. She sends him a new outfit. Mordecai, stop crying. Stop bawling in the streets. Stop yelling. Stop throwing ashes on yourself. You look terrible. You can't even go in and do your job in the way that you're clothed right now. It was a rule. The Bible says here that it was a law. You could not go in and sackcloth or in mourning clothes to do business in the king's gate which is where mordecai's job is so she says i'm gonna send you a new outfit mordecai put this on get yourself straight get back to work or whatever you're gonna do stop drawing attention to this so whatever her motivation is she tries to solve his deep grieving problem of judgment by just clothing him physically and isn't that a sign sometimes just to, in a sidestep for a moment isn't that very much like us sometimes as humans, we have deep, real, emotional, spiritual problems, and even sin problems that we sometimes try to just deal with by clothing it over. Maybe not with physical clothes, but just dealing with it and numbing ourselves to issues or to pain or even sometimes numbing ourselves to the conviction of God in this. And she tries to offer a physical response to it, but Mordecai doesn't have it. Verse 5. Then Esther called for Hatak and gave him a commandment uh, to Mordecai. It literally means just she's commanding him to go back and forth to Mordecai. Ask him why, what's wrong. I like sometimes when you, uh, you can appease your children when they're upset or maybe your husband or whoever it may be. And you can appease them. Here's a sucker. And then all of a sudden everything's better. Then there's other times they keep crying. And I got now I really got to find out what's wrong. And that's what Esther does. She sends the messenger comes back and forth. Notice what Mordecai does in verse 7. He tells him of all that happened unto him, of the sum of the money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasury for the Jews. Remember, Haman basically promised what we think would have been about the equivalent of 60% of the annual tax revenue that Persia brought from its empire. Haman offers the king about 60% of that total as a lump sum reward. King, if you'll make this law, it's a bribe. The king initially rejects it, but evidently it has some holding and standing. Because when it comes to Mordecai, oh, guess what Haman's doing? He's making this law, and he's promised to give the king this much money. Mordecai, verse 8, also gives a copy of the writing of the decree that was given at Shushan to destroy them, to show it to Esther, to declare it unto her, and to charge her that that she should go into the king. Notice what comes next, the end of verse 8, to make supplication unto him. And to make requests before him for her people. So Mordecai, Esther starts to sow a little bit more concern in verse 5. Okay, let's ask him what's really going on, what's wrong. Mordecai tells what's wrong. But notice this, number 3, he recognizes the need of a mediator. Remember we said the law of the Medes and Persians was, it sort of became synonymous with law that cannot be changed. In fact, we're going to see as we continue to study the book, The king never goes back and revokes his law because in his opinion and mind, he cannot do that. Once this is in law, it cannot be changed. It's a desperate time for them. And so Mordecai says, we need something. We need someone. We have no way to defend ourselves. We can't. The law basically even says we can't fight against this. We are going to be destroyed, Esther. We need someone to go in on our behalf. Someone that has access. Mordecai's plan, his only plan and hope was that Esther could use her standing and her position. Can you imagine being in Mordecai's place? All my, I'm going to die. All my people are going to die. Unless I send this one, for all lack of better words, his daughter, the one that he has raised, that has been taken away, that is living with a cruel and disgusting man. And he's got to send her in and hope that she doesn't die. And if she doesn't die, maybe he can save himself and all of his people. It's a difficult situation. But he can't go into the king. That's not his place. He didn't have that kind of authority. God's people didn't have any sort of influence with the king. 
And so he asked her to go into the king and beg for mercy for Notice this is very important, the end of verse number 8. Notice this. To request before him for who? Her people. Now that is very different than what he said in chapter 2, remember? Don't tell anyone who you are. And so what he is asking Esther is not just go in, flip your hair a little bit, spray some nice perfume, take him a little gift, be really nice to him, and then say, hey, you know that law that you passed? Please don't pass that. P please take that back. I'm not going to explain why. No, he doesn't say to do that. He said, you're going to have to go in and you're going to have to tell the king, all those people that you have said to kill, I am one of them. You're going to have to go in with the question of death over your head. Not just, and she's going to bring up in a moment, that he, even if I go in his presence without being summoned, I could die. So if she gets past that, that step, that's difficult enough. I have to go into his presence without being summoned. The law says if someone does that, the law is that that person dies unless the king in his heart has mercy and says, extends his scepter and says, let them live. It, it's not that he could choose to kill them if he wanted to. It, the law was that they would die. They would be killed unless he intervened. And if she gets past that, then she has to also tell him, I came in your presence. Thank you for not killing me. You passed a law that says you have to kill me. Please don't kill me now. And as humorous in a way as we see how twisted this is altogether, it's a dark situation for this young lady and, of course, for Mordecai. And so the question here and the key to the rest of the book of Esther is this. Will Esther acknowledge her place with her people and ultimately their place with God? And so we have in verses 9 through 11, it tells us the cost of being a mediator between the king and the people. Notice Esther points out the issue. Verse number 11 gives us kind of an interesting statement. That's what Esther says in verse 11. All the king's servants, and I always want to say, and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. That's not true. That's not what it says. All the king's servants... And the people of the king's provinces. Here's what she says. Everyone knows. Everyone knows this, Mordecai. It says, we do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come into the king, into the inner court, who is not called. There is one law of his to put him to death, except such whom the king should hold out a golden scepter that he may live. But I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Here's what Esther sort of adds to this. She quickly points out an issue that everyone seems to know. You cannot just enter the king's presence. The king is not accessible, and he is generally not happy. When you have a king that is inaccessible, and a king whose law is death and judgment quite often, and she says on top of that, people don't just enter the king's presence, but now she adds another layer of hopelessness to it, because she emphasizes that she feels she no longer has any special standing with the king. Notice what she says, and you can miss it if you blow over it. It says at the end of verse 11, I have not been called to come in unto the king for 30, these 30 days. Uh, it's been a month since I've seen the man that's supposed to be my husband. Now, again, he has married to dozens, probably hundreds of different women. Esther probably Esther is just the queen over the kingdom, she, but she is also in his place or in his palace just one of his wives. She says, evidently, I don't even have his interest anymore. It's a terrible circumstance. I don't even have his interest anymore. I haven't seen him in 30 days. Mordecai, you're asking me to go in and ask that he save everyone's life like I'm something special to him. And Esther, even in her own eyes and in her own estimation, has no standing before this man anymore. She says, it's a, it's a hopeless situation. Her relationship with him is broken. And now notice in verse number five, and this is... Inclination of the gospel that we have, or excuse me, verse number 12. They told Mordecai Esther's words. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. He says, Esther, if you are thinking, he addresses her questioning and maybe her fear here. Esther, if you're thinking that this law is going to be carried out and he's going to kill all the Jews and you somehow are going to be spared, Esther, you're not going to be spared. There's a number of reasons why he may be hinting at that. 
Some people know who she is. So how do you know that? Because the people know that Mordecai is a Jew. He's told people. People have seen him mourning about the death of the Jews. And the maids know that Esther is related and deeply connected to Mordecai. So he says, don't think that you're going to get off. If you think that somehow, well, all of God's people are going to be killed, but I'm going to be spared, maybe that's how God's going to continue this line. Esther, don't think for a moment you're going to be spared. This judgment is over all of us. And it's a little hint, if you would, to the essence of the gospel, that we are all depraved and that we are all lost and that we are all in sin. And he says, regardless of your position, regardless of what power you have had in the past, regardless of the place that you're living in, regardless of any other part of your life, this judgment is on you too. And the same is true for all of human beings in this world. We have a judgment that is over us, the judgment of sin, and no one escapes. And so notice what he says. Esther, and this is interesting, Esther is the only person in the book that is given two names. And now she has to decide which way she's going to go. Which identity is she going to cling to? The wife of the wicked king who has power and maybe protection. Or is she going to align as a child of God? And as we go through, of course, we see that she decides. Verse number 14. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time. And here's where Mordecai begins to preach the gospel, though he doesn't even fully realize it. He says, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. Just, Esther, if you don't do this, and notice he goes on, he says, but thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. Notice he says, if you don't do this, you're going to die. He says, but I, ha I have no doubt that God will keep his promise. God will save the Jews. Deliverance will come from somewhere, but you're going to die in spite of it. And I want you to notice, if you would, for a moment, I want you to turn to Galatians 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse number 8, for just a moment. This is a cross-reference. There's a lot of the promises of God bound up in Esther. We have God's promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, that from their line, from their seed is going to come the one that's going to bless all nations. It's going to save the world. We know it's going to come from the line of David, the king. Another king is going to be coming. We know of all the prophecies, but just in thinking of the promise to Abraham, what was the promise? That from Abraham's line would come the man, would come someone who would bless all nations in the world. I want you to look at Galatians chapter 3, verse number 8. It says, Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. Notice this in verse number 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, notice this phrase, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. Here's what Paul says in Galatians 3. Here's what God promised Abraham. It even labels it the gospel. It says, God preached the gospel to Abraham before the gospel ever got to the earth. He preached the gospel to Abraham ahead of time. What was the gospel that came to Abraham? That from him would come a Messiah that would save, offer salvation to the world. And so if you go back into Esther, you can see that maybe subconsciously, but Mordecai is preaching the gospel. Why? Because he's saying God will keep his promise. His promise that from Abraham, someone will come and save the world. God will keep his promise. So he tells her her position, her background aren't going to exempt her. Judgment's going to come. She's still going to die. And his words challenge her false sense of security and her fearlessness, her fearfulness. And so she considers, and then finally she decides. Notice, and we'll close with verse 15 down through the end of the chapter in Esther 4. Esther 4, verse 15. Then Esther bade them return Mordecai this answer. Go. Gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan. Notice this phrase, fast ye for me. Neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise. And so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. And Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. So we have here, we have sort of a five, number five, five A, the gospel's preached, five B, the gospel is believed. So Esther gives Mordecai an instruction. Actually, this is the first time that Esther is, gives Mordecai an instruction. And interestingly enough, Esther is called queen in the book of Esther 14 times. 13 of them happen after this moment. And it's kind of interesting. She's had the position of power and influence, sort of. She's married to the one that has power and influence. 
She's married and aligned, get this, she's married and aligned to the king of the world. But they don't call her Queen Esther, just the ones. And then she chooses to align herself with the people of God, the king of the universe. And suddenly for the rest of the book, she is called Queen Esther. Why? Because she finds her identity no longer in what has been given to her and what has been placed upon her by the world, but she now finds her identity in who she is as a child of God. And it's of far greater importance, the writer is insinuating to us, that it is of far greater importance to find yourself in the good hands of God than it is the powerful hands of the king. And so Esther makes her decision, and the chapter leaves us on a cliff's edge. <laughs> What's going to happen? Now, you know, you've read through the book of Esther, you know what's coming. The writer here is building us some anxiousness in our hearts. What's going to happen when someone puts their trust in their God? I want to close. I'll give you one on the, on the back. We're not going to walk all the way through this. Some of these questions are for you. Really, tonight, all we did was sort of walk through the chapter. It's going to get a, a little bit more implication and application to us as we go through the rest of the book, but I want you to notice, it says in the back, the temptation in a book like Esther is to make it a hero narrative. And what I mean by that, it is to say, here's the hero of the story, the book of the Bible, the account of God's people. Here's the hero, it is Esther. And then the temptation is to draw a line from Esther to ourselves. How can we be like Esther? How can we have faith like Esther? How can we be brave like Esther? the problem with that is that's a secondary storyline that's a secondary application it we do need to be courageous we do need to identify with god and his people more than the world we do need those things but that application and it can be made in a healthy way but that is the secondary application because anyone that reads the scope of the whole bible and then reads esther and in particular, chapter number four, this need for a mediator has to see the shadow of the overall scope of God's plan in the gospel for the world. You, there's no way you can't see it. There is judgment declared by an evil man who has influence over an evil king with evil intentions and evil authority. And that influence then brings judgment on every one of God's people, in this case it's certain ones, but you can kind of see, again, it's a shadow. It's not a perfect picture. It's a real event that happened, but it shadows what has happened in the scope of humanity. That there is an evil one, Satan, who through the power and influence and the reign and the rule of sin has brought judgment over the lives of all men, all women, regardless of scope, regardless of position, regardless of power, accomplishment, or influence. It didn't matter if you were a good Jew, if you were a great Jew, if you were powerful. It didn't matter if you're the queen of the world. You're going to die in this judgment. The same is true for all of humanity under the reign and rule of sin. And the need is just the same. We need a mediator. And you can compare the goodness of God as king Compared to the awfulness of King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes, he is inaccessible. He is self-consumed. Death comes all that enter his presence. It is on a whim. It is only his own ambitions and his own desires that he ever really answers to. He treats those that he loves, supposedly. He treats them as objects for his own hedonistic pleasure. He's an awful king. And though that shadow is not parallel to God as our king, it makes us thankful for the king that God is. That he is accessible. That he has made himself known to his people. He has made himself known to this world through his word. That he is not ruling on a whim for his own selfish desires, but rather in actual love. He desires to lift the curse of judgment over our lives. And it is not that we have to find a great human being to be our mediator. He provides one for us. The opposite of the story of Esther in which they have to find someone that happens to have an end with the king and hope that she doesn't die. The opposite happens in the story of the gospel. The king who is ruling and reigning desires to see people have judgment removed from them. 
And so he does not summon and ask humans to send their best representative. He sends one on their behalf that will enter into his presence, that has the authority, that has the power to enter into his presence, not hoping he won't die, but assured that he will die. You see, Esther is pointing us not, oh, look at the great mediator Esther was. It's pointing us to a far greater mediator. One who would come on behalf of the people and stand before the king. Remember, Esther says, what does she say? Go fast on my behalf for three, what? Three days. It says day and night. And so you have a mediator who says, I'm going to go alone and suffer. Right? She says, I'm going to fast. It's a form of suffering and denial. I'm going to go suffer for three days and three nights. And when I'm done, I'll go before the king and I'll ask him to spare you on my behalf. Do you see it? <laughs> Jesus, the better mediator, comes in perfection from the king himself. He says, I will suffer and die and for three days and three nights and then I will enter into the king's presence and I will plead on your behalf that he lift the sentence of judgment knowing full well that the sacrifice will be accepted and that mercy will be bestowed. And so when we read Esther, the temptation to be like, oh, we want to be like Esther. We are not the heroes of the gospel. Jesus Christ is the hero. And so when we look at Esther, yes, we can be brave. We can follow like her. But before we ever attempt to do that, we must first recognize and realize, I am glad that someone much better than Esther came. And they came on my behalf. And they pleaded with God by mercy not hoping that they would not die, but came willing, knowing that they would die on my behalf. And so I hope that tonight as we see the gospel through the book of Esther, we'll be encouraged by it. Let's ask him to help us do that. Father, thank you for your word. It is good and precious. It is beautiful and kind. And so we ask that you would guide us, give us the mind of Christ, first point our minds toward Christ that without you we have no hope and so we pray that we would recognize it that you have stood for us and on our behalf you have faced death and judgment for us so that judgment might be lifted and we thank you that though Esther is not it's not a perfect it's it's not a live happily ever after story but we're thankful that it pointed that even when you seem absent, even when you seem uninvolved in our lives, that you have given us your son and that you are always active, ruling and reigning, present in us and through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to notice, if you will, we're going to spend four or five minutes in prayer as we close. And I want, I want us to spend some very specific time this evening in prayer. And there's several <clears throat> names on the list here. I want you to continue to pray for our church and its ministries. Like I said, we have several that are coming to join in the next uh, few weeks. And I've been going through our church membership class on Sunday evenings. And I hope that you'll come and be a part of that. And our responsibility to each other, not to a place, but to each other, the opportunity that God gives us. And uh, there's a few that are uh, seeking discipleship, and we're praying for that as we grow. Uh, we have a number of people <clears throat> out this evening that are not feeling well. We're praying for them as well. But particularly tonight, I want to pray for a couple of our church members. You see there, uh, Jeff Lewis texted me this morning and said his father, you know, he's waiting for lung surgery. He said his uh, dad had fallen. He was already recovering, recovering from COVID. It pushed the surgery back, and he had fallen this morning and was being taken to the hospital. And so if you would uh, pray for uh, Dick Lewis and his family as well as we're going through this. And you see at the bottom there, you see that Joan Mowbray, uh, we're praying for her and the passing of her daughter uh, last week. Unexpected and very young and uh, it's a difficult uh, situation and time for Joan. And so I appreciate those of you that have reached out to her. And um, uh, to be honest, she's, she's dealing with it. She's in, in shock just like many others. And so she's going to need a lot of prayer and a lot of help on our behalf as the church in the next days and weeks. And, and so I want to very particularly pray for her tonight 
And then you see there at the top of your list, um, if you did not know uh, that Margaret Watson passed away this morning. You know, we mentioned Sunday she'd been put into comfort care, and uh, she did pass, as we would say, peacefully this morning. And um, uh, she, please, I, I, uh, she's such a sweet lady, and uh, we're praying for Valerie, of course, and for Bob and Robin and their family. Um, and we'll let you know about services in the next few days. It just happened this morning, so uh, still things kind of moving around. And uh, and she made the decision, when Mrs. Watson made the decision to to go into hospice or comfort care, and, um, you know, it's a difficult situation. It's a difficult place to be in, but um, I went in and saw her a couple different times, and she teased a little bit back and forth. You forget sometimes that she's British, and so she has this British sense of humor, uh, that can sometimes be quite sadistic, in fact, uh, at times. And so she teased about certain things, and I was standing there talking to her, and she said um, something that they had, some of the medical devices or a thing that was beeping and something was going off, and I asked her if I should get somebody to check on the alarm, and she said, no, it she said, won't matter soon anyway. And, uh, and she looked over with a smirk, and she sang different things throughout the few days. But she looked over with a smirk at Valerie, she said, and, uh, started singing Going Home, and uh, that's where she is this evening, and we're thankful for that. We're thankful for her faith and for her service. Much will be said the next few days about her, but I was trying to think, and if you can think of more, and you text it to me, send it to me, tell me. She's made baby clothes for most of the families in our church, church planners around the country. I know baby clothes she's made that are in Spain and Ireland and England and Japan at my house, you know, wherever it may be, and uh, she served in that way for many, many years, and now she gets to see some of the fruits of that labor, and so we're praying for her family uh, in the coming days as well. Let's spend some time in prayer tonight. I encourage you to pray there as a couple or as a family out loud, and if you can slide over and pray with a friend or another couple, that'd be great, but let's spend four or five minutes in prayer, particularly for these three families that have... Uh, hurt and loss and need, um, and then uh, for the others there that are on our prayer list tonight, and then we'll be dismissed in just a few minutes.